It is the News Roundup where we discuss the region's top stories of the week. Joining us in studio, Ann Brennan, Assistant Managing Editor of Digital Media at the Cape Cod Times. Morning, Ann. Morning, Mindy. And Laura Reckford, Editor at the Barnstable Enterprise. Morning, Laura. Good morning, Mindy. And uh, on the the line from the Cape Cod Times newsroom is Paul Pronovo, Editor of the Cape Cod Times. Morning, Paul. Good morning, Mindy. I'm going to start out, Paul, you're just here for this first story. The uh, paper this week issued an apology to readers. Tell us what that was all about. Right. Well, uh, certainly we, we like to report the news. We don't like to make the news. And uh, we certainly don't like to make the news in this manner. Uh, but indeed, we had uh, an apology to our readers published on Wednesday. Uh, and this relates to uh, a reporter uh, that we had, a longtime reporter, who uh, we found had fabricated sources in stories and in some cases also made up names for folks in quite a number uh, of stories going back a, a ways. Uh, we were unable to find uh, 69 people in a total of 34 stories dating back to uh, 1998, and that's when we started uh, archiving our stories electronically, so it's a good database. Uh, this reporter had been with us since 1981, uh, and it's frankly difficult to go back farther than that. So uh, this is the period we were able to examine. Uh, this is what we uh, learned uh, about the situation. And uh, this reporter, Karen Jeffrey, uh, no longer works with the Times. Mm. Um, this, of course, is, is uh, an extremely difficult uh, situation, situation for us, and, and I think even for the industry as a whole. Uh, you know, times are, times are difficult already for, for journalists and, and for newspapers. And so uh, to have any blow to your credibility is, is significant. Um, and, uh, you know, it, we have uh, an implied contract with our readers that there is a trust between us. Uh, we publish the facts and things that we uh, know to be true, and readers in turn believe it. Mm-hmm. And when anything uh, happens that affects that, that bond, that trust, uh, it's, it's a serious situation. And it's why we felt we needed to uh, publish something uh, that laid all the facts on the table and let readers uh, see what had happened, uh, to show them what we did to look into this, and, and quite frankly, to apologize, mm-hmm. because uh, we did break that trust with them, and uh, we are very sorry it happened, and, and we're now doing everything we can to, to restore the trust, and, yeah. and I think that's our only recourse at this point. Uh, we can't go back in time and change what happened. It happened. Uh, all we can do now is uh, take the right steps forward, and I think we're doing that. Yeah. And that, I think that's a question a lot of people have is, go, well, wh- what are you putting in place now to maybe uh, catch something like this sooner should it ever happen again? Right. Well, and, you know, let's first back up and start with the fact that, you know, there is not only a basic trust between a news organization and, and their readership or, or their audience in any way, but there's, a, there's a, a level of trust that you have to extend each other as, as journalists. And, uh, for example, reporters do the reporting. They go out and, and they collect stories and the facts and, and find sources, and they write stories, and editors edit those stories. The editors can't do the reporting for reporters. So already there's, there's a level of trust between them that has to be maintained. Um, so, you know, it, it's, it's a, when, when that breaks down, um, it's, it's unfortunate. But, but quite honestly, it's an anomaly. Mm. And, uh, you know, when, when you think about the folks uh, who, who work in our business and how devoted they are to the cause of, of telling the truth, to being the folks who bring good, truthful information into their communities, they're, they're incredibly passionate about that to almost a person. Uh, there's, a, there's a rare bad apple in the bunch. And so, you know, it's, it's 
one of the things that makes a situation like this so difficult mm-hmm. is the fact that when it happens, and, it, and it's happened uh, in lots of places, it's happened several times this year uh, in other news organizations, unfortunately. Uh, there are famous examples with Jason Blair at the New York Times, Stephen Glass at the New Republic, and, and what have you. And, and that has a, an unfair rea- uh, reaction to, to the business in general. Uh, but the point is, that most journalists are honest and honorable and care very deeply about what they're doing. So, you know, the mm-hmm. chances of it happening again are slim to begin with because right. of that fact. Uh, having said that, of course, you know, we, need, we know we need to put some steps into place uh, to address this, and uh, we're looking at a number of things. Uh, among the things we're going to look at is, is uh, uh, more consistent, uh, systemic uh, checking of, uh, and verification of sources, uh, that's a direct response to to what's happened here, um, but but beyond that, uh, some some more general soul searching about uh, sort of our our ethics and uh, accuracy uh, guidelines. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have uh, and Anne's in studio, and she maybe can talk about this a little bit. Anne chaired a group a couple years ago uh, that was the Accuracy and Credibility Committee, and uh, they did some fantastic work uh, putting together checklists for for all disciplines in the newsroom, uh, putting together a policy handbook and, and something that every person in the newsroom had. That book was done in 2006. We've, we've now had to reactivate that group uh, to, to update it. And frankly, it's, it's well-timed anyway, because mm-hmm. in this the changing uh, world that we live in with social media and the like, uh, we need to be going back and looking at some of those things anyway. Yeah. So this incident sort of inspires that. Uh, and beyond that, uh, you know, one of the things I have found interesting about this, uh, fascinating really, is the responses I have uh, received from, from folks all across the country, and in particular a number of journalists across the country uh, who, have, who have said, you know, really appreciate how you handled this. Uh, you know, here is my situation. And, and they have told time and again uh, uh, situations where they have encountered similar uh, problems right. and, and dealt with them in, in ver- a variety of ways. And, and some people who um, are famous and have had movies uh, made of their situations, and then some folks who are not famous uh, but are journalists who had to deal with things. And, uh, and I've engaged several of them in conversations sort of to pick their brains and mm-hmm. see what they did, how, how they responded, and, and how, they, how they move forward, because that, to me, is the most important thing. Yeah. I was, feel, you know, we need, to, we need to move forward, and that's what we're intending to do. Yeah. That was going to be my question, too, was the response, because you, you mentioned other news organizations who have gone through this similar thing, and, and um, some, some have not, frankly, been as transparent as you. They haven't, you know, put it all on the table and said, here's what we found, and, and shared that with their readers. Uh, so I was wondering about the response to that. I would imagine that you've got a lot of people saying, uh, we're glad you, you took this route and, and you know, put it everything out there. Um, that's true. And, and frankly, um, when, when, we, when we learned about this, there really was no other path. We, we knew immediately what we needed to do, and that was to uh, lay our cards on the table and mm-hmm. tell people what had happened and, and show them examples of what had happened and tell them what we had done about it. And you're right. I think not every organization does that. Um, you know, certainly when you're dealing with, with uh, companies and personnel situations in sort of the business setting, you know, you never hear about things that happen because they're, they're private companies and they're mm-hmm. looking to protect their reputation. Uh, but we're a different business. We're, we're the media, and we have uh, this trust that I talked about. And the only way to restore that trust is to explain what has happened and be transparent. Treat yourselves like you would treat any other 
source, anyone else that you would cover. Uh, you know, we every day go out and, and probe politicians and police officers and all walks of life, and uh, if, if they get into trouble, we, we lay them out there on the front page, and to do anything less for ourselves would have been hypocritical, to yeah. say the least. Yeah. So we needed to do that. Doing it, though, to be honest, Mindy, yeah. I thought we might get hammered. Uh, you know, people will be critical. How could this have happened? You know, and all this stuff. The response has been unbelievably, overwhelmingly positive. Yeah. Uh, folks uh, from across the country, many not journalists, yeah. uh, just regular folks, uh, writing to us saying, you know, how pleased they were that we did this, how rare it is that people share uh, what has happened like this, how rare it is people apologize. Right. And uh, there was one woman in Tennessee who, who came across the story on Facebook, and she wrote a letter saying uh, that she was moved by this. She's never read the Cape Cod Times, but was planning to take the apology home and, sh- and show her kids this is this is what you do when, when you make a mistake, you own up. Right. And I, I can't help but think of, of the newsroom itself. I mean, this is devastating when, you know, you're a journalist working alongside other journalists and something like this happens because, you know, there's that sort of that suspicious eye and uh, and I, I'm wondering about the morale in the newsroom. Well, I mean, without a question, this is a serious blow uh, to morale. Uh, people, uh, I think it's fair to say, have been shocked by this. Um, I think it's fair to say people feel betrayed uh, personally in some cases uh, by this. And they get it that, it, that it's not only damaging to, to Karen, uh, who, who committed these fabrications, but it's damaging to our organization, it's damaging to our industry. Right. And, uh, and that doesn't sit well with folks. I think uh, if, if people are heartened at all, it's because we are treating it as openly and honestly as possible and, and looking to move forward, because uh, that's all we can do. Um, if, if, we, if we hand-ring about what happened, uh, we're not going to get anywhere. So we just need to uh, pick ourselves up and, uh, and move on, and that's, and that's what we're doing. To me, the, the apology was really noteworthy because it did give more information than, than really one would expect or, or perhaps they needed to do. But the significant thing is that that was really the first step toward gaining the trust back and laying so much out on the table as it did. I, I had a lot of people commented to me about getting mm-hmm. all the details of it, and it was probably one of the best read stories of the day. I would think that their hits on their website probably increased multitudes that day. So it all, it's, it, as I said, it's the first step back, and I think it was it handled very well. All right, Paul Pronovo, editor at the Cape Cod Times. Paul, thanks so much for uh, joining us to talk about that. Thanks, Mindy. Have fun with the other headlines, gang. All right. Thanks. Other news this week. What seemed like a pretty sure bet not looking as secure. The State Gaming Commission considering opening up the Southeastern Casino license to commercial bidders as the Mashpee Wampanoag uh, face obstacles in their quest for the casino in Taunton. Right. This is something that happened this week, and the the commission is actually going to make a decision about it next week. But as we've talked about even last week, uh, the Mashpee Wampanoag have been on a pretty good track um, up until, I guess, September when uh, they had had put a lot of things in place. They got permission from the town of Taunton to build a casino there by a by a vote. They had paid $1.5 million to the town. They um, had agreed to a compact with the state and everything kind of came to a screeching halt when the Bureau of Indian Affairs said this compact isn't going to go two point excuse me 21.5 percent of revenues to the state from your casino is too much and so now the tribe and the the uh, governor are back at the bargaining table trying to figure out what what the new um, agreement's going to look like it's 
going to be substantially less money. I know the BIA turned down one agreement, I believe, with a tribe in California that had agreed to pay uh, 14.5%. So um, those issues are still there as well as the tribe getting land into trust. The um, There's uh, a law that um, the tribes that are not in, uh, that were not recognized are in federal jurisdiction by 1934. The federal government cannot put land into trust for them. The Supreme Court upheld that in 2009. And the Senate had a bill to, to kind of take care of that, but that seemed to be stalled as well. So the commission, um, after noting, one of the members noted these difficulties, said, you know, Southeastern Mass may fall behind in trying to get a casino in that area. The, the, the goal is to create jobs, bring economic stimulus, and um, they're fearful that that's not going to happen in southeastern Mass if the Mashpee Wampanoag um, go through all this and at the end of the day aren't able to uh, come up with uh, what they need in order to move forward. Well, this is serious stuff for the tribe because they've already put millions into um, the, the development process so far. They have plans that are fairly far along in Taunton. And consultants, lawyers, we talked about this a few weeks ago, spent millions, have borrowed millions. And so as to what happens, we'll just have to wait and see. Well, some people are saying that maybe it's time to give another deadline to the tribe um, a, because – People who want to apply for a casino license have to come up with $400,000 in order to do so. They um, have five to seven who are going to be, I guess, going to be going for the licenses in the two other areas of the state. And they're saying, well, it's not clear businesses are going to want to put up that kind of money if there's no clear way ahead. Mm -hmm. But um, that's what... Uh, And uh, uh, State Representative Cabral uh, said he's glad to hear... Uh, that the gaming commission is is considering uh, sharing, you know, the commercial interest with this. Um, he told us the uh, um, Standard Times, we were when we passed the Gaming Act, we wanted to prevent litigation and judicial questions from uh, preventing Regency from getting a casino. He says if the commission doesn't start and t- accepting commercial bids, the South Coast will be the only region prevented from accessing the jobs and economic development that a casino would uh, create. So, and I think so there are a lot of these sections of the state, the three sections, who, they want to be kind of first to the finish line. Right. You know, they want to get their casinos up and running. And um, so we'll see the. Um, Cedric Cromwell, uh, who is the head of the uh, Wampanoag Tribal Council, said, look, we're further ahead than anybody. Mm -hmm. And, in fact, he was down at the White House with uh, a summit of Native American tribes um, with the president. The governor saying it's still a priority coming up with uh, an agreement. So we'll see what happens. Well, other news this week, Governor Patrick looking to close a projected $540 million state budget gap. Includes uh, taking $200 million from the Rainy Day Fund and cutting 1% from unrestricted aid from cities and towns. There's a few other things, too, but those are some of the two that are floating to the right. top. Well, this is a result of a shortfall in expected tax revenues since the beginning of the fiscal year. I know in, in, there were news stories about nervously watching what was going to happen with the November revenues. And when they came in short, the, the governor announced pretty quickly that they were going to have to make cuts. Um, and... This um, 1% reduction to local aid is, as you were saying earlier, actually 
more like 2% because it's coming in the middle of the fiscal year. Um, this is unrestricted fiscal, uh, excuse me, local aid, which goes to things like uh, public safety, the social safety net programs. It doesn't, as I understand it, affect schools. Mm-hmm. But it's definitely a blow to the towns here who Ooh, have been already struggling, struggling already. Yeah, exactly. Well, the uh, Congregation of Cape Cod Bible Alliance Church, which burned down last week, um, they're coming together as they grapple with rebuilding. And the man accused of starting that fire, according to officials, has a history. Right. It's un- always unfortunate when your house of um, your worship, church, yeah. yeah, house mm-hmm. of worship burns down, but especially at, for Christians in the Christmas season. So they um, met their meeting now on Sundays at the Stony Brook School cafeteria and talking about rebuilding, um, being philosophical and saying that um, there must be some message in this loss, and we're trying to figure out what that message is and and trying to move forward um, in a bad situation. Mm. And in the meantime, um, sh- you know, the fire broke out very early Saturday morning, excuse me, Friday morning last week, and by 8 o'clock that night, the police had arrested um, Adam Finnegan, 29, of Brewster, and um, they actually had their eye on him from very early on. Um, shortly before the fire, uh, the um, Adam, who lives with his family, and his family said has had mental health issues, um, including that have included setting fires. Um, the parents called the police and said, "You know, we're afraid he's going to commit suicide. He's out in his car. He's been drinking, and he's threatening to do that." Um, the mother and and so the police were going to the Finnegan home when they spotted Adam um, coming from the direction of the church. This is all allegedly, and they followed him home. And when they got there, he was in the kitchen eating a peanut butter sandwich and there was a discussion he did have some cuts on his lacerations on his arms but the police office and the and the mother I think at that point said you know he's setting little fires I'm worried about him living here um, the doctors are saying there's nothing they can do he had been in um, received mental health treatment inpatient and um, outpatient and so the police officer left and I think believe it was like 259 a few minutes later the alarm came in for the um, the fire, mm. and it was a pretty spectacular fire. They had um, fire departments from Yarmouth to, I believe, Wellfleet there um, trying to save the building. It was a huge fire. Yeah. Later in the morning, um, a police, state police trooper and his specially trained dog did find, uh, allegedly found accelerant in the soil near the entrance of the church, and that led them back to um, Finnegan, who was um, seen on tape, um, at a local gas station before the fire buying gas. Um, and when they arrested him, they found a, a 1.4 gallon tank, a gas, portable gas tank and matches. What's interesting to going back to the congregation for a second is um, s- since the church went down, they, they really seem to have come together. They're saying right. the services have been you know, m- well attended, right. more uh, well attended than, than they have been generally in, in recent times. So um, it's amazing how something like this can bring, bring people, people together, yeah, right? Exactly. It's a 320 people, I believe, yeah, in the congregation. congregation. It's have... become a message of forgiveness, right. which is so interesting. Yeah. Right. right. Uh, Laura Barnstable Town Council had a packed house last night as uh, discussions began on a series of proposed ordinances that would impact that so-called problem properties. Well, that's right. These were five ordinances that were put together by a subcommittee of the Greater Hyannis Civic Association. They held uh, the Voices of the Village session. It's now 18 months ago or so where they 
got together to 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 um, brainstorm on what they could do to improve the village. This is one of the main things that came out of it: putting together these ordinance and, and ordinances, and they've worked with town attorneys and town regulatory officials on these ordinances for months and months, and then did an outreach to all the civic associations and all the villages in the town of Barnstable. Essentially, the ordinances deal with things like blight, um, having too many renters in a building, noise, but the main one, and the one that got the most discussion last night, has to do with charging property owners if police come to the residence more than three times in a year. And that got a lot of people in the audience and some town councilors talking and, and unsure of whether this was the right thing to do. You had the whole gamut of the community in the audience. You had business people, residents, and then you had homeless people speaking about this and saying that they live in the, the homeless shelter and they were concerned about uh, discriminatory uh, practices that this, this, this might entail. Um, the, the issue really is if the um, town begins charging people for police details as people um, as uh, people call in, could it be a, a neighborhood feud where someone calls the police over a property? Um, if there's a domestic violence situation, will someone hesitate to call the police? Mm-hmm. And then people talked about in this tight economy, will you end up getting liens on property and people have to foreclose on their property because these liens get to be too mm-hmm. high? So there were all types of issues, what they finally decided was um, to pretty much not exactly go back to the drawing board, but really uh, parse out these issues for the next month. And they put it to a, a date certain in January to come back to this. They said, we're not putting this on the shelf forever, but we're going to come back to this after we really look closely, get the language right. A lot of people were saying, look, it's a step in the right direction. Let's go ahead and pass it, even if it's not perfect. And others said, no, let's get it perfect. Right. So yeah, they, A lot they, of questions still yes, there. Yes, yeah. a lot of questions. They mm-hmm. aired on the side of really working on it some more. Mm-hmm. We got some new leadership in town council? Well, that's right. After um, an unprecedented four terms as council president, um, Fred Cherigotis of Centerville opted not to run this time. And there was really just one nomination for president and vice president. It was uh, Deborah Dagwan of Hyannis, um, who was a retired teacher, PhD in education, um, who is now the president, unanimously elected last night, and Vice President Jessica Rapp Grissetti of Katuit, um, who's a, a, a painting conservator and um, of longtime family in the town of Barnstable and in Katuit, and they are now the president and vice president. First time having a woman as pres- mm. women as president and vice president of the council. Mm. Women make up more than half the council for the first time also this year. Mm. Well, uh, and the Old Mill Hill Club uh, could be replaced with a memory care facility, which would, I guess, offer about 75 beds for people suffering with Alzheimer's and other forms of dementia. Right. This is a um, the Mill Hill Club is a blighted um, building as well on Route 28 and has been shut down for about uh, seven years. I mean, nobody's yeah. it's been uninhabited for about seven years, and the. Mayflower Place Continuing Care Retirement Community has asked, as you say, to build the 75-bed memory care place. They would tear down the building and and put a new facility there. Uh, This week, the Yarmouth Selectman gave an endorsement to that project, saying it aligns with their um, long-term plans for the the town. The project is now in front of the Cape Cod Commission, and so the endorsement helps in that process. Mm -hmm. Um, In addition to the 75-bed care unit, they already run 128 independent living units on Block Island Road, which backs up, that property backs up to the Mill Hill Club property. So they want to also add um, some um, 
another independent living building um, and connect it, mm-hmm. uh, I believe, with this uh, 75 unit memory um, yeah, care and place and for Alzheimer's and dementia and patients. And you can't help notice that building as it right. kind of is, you know, getting more and more dilapidated. It's sort right. of front and center there, right on, on the, you know, right. around that corner. And yeah. and there is a need for for Absolutely. this type of care on Cape Cod. So um, the the planning board also endorsed it unanimously. And um, so I think there's there's movement um, at least in town to support this. They will have a hearing on the pu- a public hearing on the plan for December seventeenth at the Yarmouth Town Hall. This is a Cape Cod Commission subcommittee right. to get um, hear what the town members want to have right. to say about it. And then uh, Laura over in Hyannis, transportation officials this week sharing some. Some ideas and some projects that could better utilize some downtown properties. Well, the interesting thing about this area is most people don't even know it exists, even right. if you go to Hyannis every day, because it's completely hidden. And in fact, one of the things that they're talking about is adding some roads and make it make it sort of a, a, a small little village area with a mixed use of retail and residential. You have a lot of space there. It's actually newly developed as the transportation center with a huge parking lot, but it's no one can really access it or use it as much, and it seems like wasted space where it's practically right in the center of town. So they are floating these ideas of how to redevelop it as a, as a village area, make transportation um, easier for people, link it, link it to the different other transportation options on the Cape, and basically allow people to get into this area where you, you can't now and where there's a lot of need for rental housing. This looks like an area walking distance to the center of Hyannis that would be good for rental housing as well well. Yeah, well, you look at that new transportation center, and right. uh, we've talked about this before, some of the coordinating, coordination efforts that are going on between the air, ferries, the buses, and, and really trying to make uh, a better effort to make public transportation more available. And then to put some of these things that they're talking about updated really might be a, a, a destination. You know, People might really right. want to come and spend some time there rather than just landing and then getting to wherever they're... Well, it's an obvious thing to do to that area, to put some housing. And not just um, getting cars around, but they're trying to figure out how to get people a better access. Like the train tracks in the area Mm -hmm. are hard to cross. Um, And it's that area near the uh, Puffer Bellies, kind of Puffer Bellies, and behind Mm -hmm. um, what's now the Transportation Center and um, a rail yard, just trying to, like Laura said, make it better. Well, finally this morning, the organizations that offer food and financial assistance are bracing for a tough winter. Uh, demand remains high, something we should keep in mind. Right. This is um, Mass Needs is a is a, f- a funding collaborative that works um, with many agencies, but some on Cape Cod, including the Falma Service Center and the Lower Cape Outreach Council, among others. And uh, the Lower Cape Outreach Council says that they're continuing to see people in need. There are eight food pantries, for example, uh, prior to the financial crisis of 2008, used to be able to get along on donated goods. Now they spend um, 92000 a year to supplement donations in order to meet the need. And these are working people, um, many times making $10 an hour. Um, if they're lucky, they're full-time. And um, so they're they're hoping to meet the need and letting people know that... Yeah. Um, Thanksgiving Family Service Center gave out uh, 1,229 dinners compared to 1,052 last year. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Laura Reckford, editor at the Barnstable Enterprise, and Brennan, assisting managing editor of Digital Media at the Cape Cut Times. Thank you both. Thanks, Thanks Mindy. Mindy. Also, thanks to Paul Pronovo, editor of Cape Cut Times, for joining us at the top of the show. I'm Mindy Todd. Thank you for listening. The Point airs weekdays at 9.30 a.m. and 7.30 p.m. We're also on Facebook at The Point WCAI. 
The Point is produced by Amy Vince. The executive producer is Mindy Todd. Production assistance from Dan Tridel. Theme music by Benjamin Verdery and William Coulter. The Point is a production of the Cape and Islands NPR stations, a service of WGBH. WGBH.